Sorry to interrupt, it's Misha here, the Conversations Managing Editor. As you probably know, the conversation relies on you, our readers, to help fund our work. Over the next two weeks, we desperately need your help to keep doing our work and to keep this podcast on air. It doesn't take much. For $30 a month, you can help us provide clean, evidence-based information. If you value what we do, please give now by visiting donate.theconversation.edu.au or by clicking on the banner ad on our homepage. And now, back to the podcast. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. Our theme today is explainers, explaining those tricky and baffling topics that you sort of know a bit about but not enough to really explain it at a dinner party. Well, after this episode you will. We'll hear what psychology research has to say about why people like pimple-popping videos. We're watching a YouTube video that's just a 50-minute compilation of pimples being popped. Oh. Really bizarre. Yep. Oh, yep. Yeah. really close. It's really it's zoomed super in. Close. And how quantum mechanics really works. Any piece of electronics you have, be it your phone, headphones, is using quantum mechanics. But first, the conversation's Wes Mountain is unpacking a topic that is truly hard to get your head around. Lone actor terrorism. The brazen hostage-taking at a downtown Sydney cafe ended with a risky police operation and bloodshed. 32-year-old Anders Brevik killed 76 people in the country's worst attack since the Second World War. The picture that seems to be emerging is of a car plowing into a number of people on Westminster Bridge and then the situation within the Palace of Westminster developing from there. After the attack on the World Trade Centre on September 11th, 2001, most people's idea of what terrorism is focused on the idea of semi-organised cells conspiring to commit acts of violence for a common goal. The evidence we have gathered all points to a collection of loosely affiliated terrorist organisations known as Al-Qaeda. But as security services got better at tackling terror plots and groups like Al-Qaeda either faded or shifted to more chaotic online-focused organisations like the Islamic State, people acting alone have become a much bigger focus. The capacity of Daesh, of course, is much less than they proclaim it to be, uh, but we do have to be very alert to the actions of uh, these lone actors. So what do we make of lone actors? The general perception of lone actors is that they are kind of mad and bad. That's Raffaello Pantucci. He's an associate fellow at King's College in London and the director of international studies at the Royal United Services Institute. And he thinks there's a good reason lone actors are hard for most people to wrap their head around. Already a terrorist actor saying that people can't comprehend. To have someone do this by themselves, to not even be connected to a group, to see, be someone who's completely isolated, who's latched onto these ideas and decided under their own steam that, you know, what I have to go do is go murder other people in advance of a political ideology that I have no apparent connection with. You know, that sounds like the behaviour of a crazy person to most people. 
In 2016, Raffaello published a series of papers, a collaboration with a group of researchers from universities and institutes across Europe that investigated the common factors, beliefs and methods of lone actor terrorists from a survey of 120 acts and plots in Europe between January 2000 and the end of 2014. And the first thing they found was that there wasn't an agreed definition. We did basically a two-day workshop in The Hague where we got together all our consortium partners and discussed definitions because it's very difficult actually to define. I mean, in general, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've been involved in conversations at an academic level where people say, what does terrorism mean? Define terrorism. There is no clean definition of terrorism or extremism, right? Because, you know, the old cliche is one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. When you're looking at lone actors, it's even more confusing. So they ended up settling on a working definition. The threat or use of violence by a single perpetrator or small cell, not acting out of purely personal material reasons, with the aim of influencing a wider audience, who acts without any direct support in the planning, preparation and execution of the attack, and whose decision to act is not directed by any group or other individuals, although possibly inspired by others. But that's a little bit academic. Raffaello says it helps to break it down into a few key categories. In the first instance, you do get some people who are lone actors, who really have sort of decided because for whatever individual reasons they have, whatever psychoses or other demons they're trying to excise, that linking up with this ideology and committing an act in its advance is something that is their chosen role in life. So that's one end of the spectrum. But... You also get people who actually are loosely connected to networks. And so you get these individuals who are sort of on the periphery of a terrorist network or people who've been involved with radicalized individuals in the past who maybe thought about going to a training camp but never actually did, who did a whole series of activity, meaning that they showed up on the intelligence picture or radar and then ultimately decided to go do an act of terrorism. But at the same time, there's no evidence that is discernible that says that someone within that network or group told them to commit the act. So what do you make of that case? Because there you've got someone who is sort of not really alone because they were clearly part of a radical milieu, but they've decided to commit an act of terrorism by themselves. The data set that Raffaello and the rest of his team were looking at ended in 2014, but he says there's also a third group that are even more murky that will appear to have become more common since then. So what we can see now is a number of cases where you have individuals who act by themselves here in the West, you know, in Australia or in the UK or somewhere else, but are being told and commanded to do this from a distance and they're talking to someone and they've got a relationship with someone in Syria and Iraq usually who they're talking to online who is basically spurring them on to do the act. This is a fascinating twist in in this whole phenomenon because now you're looking at individuals who are committing these acts by themselves and the only sort of direction they're getting is from someone they're talking to on the internet who which could be anybody and yet the relationship that they develop through the internet with this person, and I don't mean the internet like a big evil thing, it is social communication apps, stuff like Kick, Telegram, you know, WhatsApp, those sorts of things. Those relationships they're developing are so intense and so real to these people that they're ready to commit these sorts of atrocities at this individual's behest, believing that it is part of some sort of a bigger cause. You're probably not used to hearing the words lone actor for this kind of terrorist. Some politicians and the media often use another term. Let's head overseas now, an apparent lone wolf attacker. A recent example of a lone wolf attacker was Omar Mateen, the Orlando nightclub shooter. Investigators believe Amor Fatui is a lone wolf. But that's probably a bad idea. Lone wolf is an important one to avoid. And actually, if you look at the parlance that um, certainly the British security services and the police use, and I think the Australians as well, because they're very close, they don't actually use the term lone wolf. You'll have politicians sometimes use it, but security services do not. And they don't do it for a very specific reason, which is it does glorify the act somewhat. 
So if you're talking about a lone wolf, it has got a kind of cool connotation to it. You know, it suggests this sort of predator stalking his prey, committing these sorts of atrocities in advance of this big message. It does have a certain drama to it. And while it's one the media likes because it heightens the sense of threat and immediacy, it's also one that terrorist organisations quite like too. The term lone wolf is one that is appealing to them and one that they will specifically sort of highlight. So you'll see it in jihadist publications and you'll really see it in the far right. And if you look at extreme right wing publications, they are full of references to lone wolves. They are full of the idea of the sort of wolf as the lone individual who's, you know, advancing race hate or protecting the white races from whatever, you know, is something that is very much imbued in their ideology. So there's been a very conscious decision, I know, at least in the UK and I suspect in, in Australia as well, to avoid using that specific term because it's recognised that it is very much one that the groups like and the groups approve of and glorifies it from their perspective. There's a big upshot for terrorists and terror organisations in having lone actors commit acts. How do police and security services get onto cells? They usually get onto cells because they talk to someone else, and that means that their phone will show up in the records of that guy. When the police arrest that guy for whatever reason, they'll look through his phone and say, oh, look, who's this? And then they'll investigate, and there we go. So having no clear contact between lone actors keeps them off the intelligence radar. But there's also a major downside. Lone actors without military experience aren't very effective. First of all, if we think about it from the bomb maker perspective, you know, actually making a bomb is not as easy as one would think. It's not something that's easy to do, and it's not something that usually you get right the first time. So if you've been to a training camp where someone has taught you how to do it, and someone has had, you had the opportunity to practice, then you're far more likely to be able to make a bomb that actually goes off. And those training camps, the focus of a lot of reporting on alleged terrorists in the early 2000s, or going overseas to fight in places like Syria and Iraq, also prepare would-be lone actors in other ways. On the other side of the equation, going to a training camp means you've probably got to practice and you've probably got to fight on a battlefield. It means you've probably seen dead bodies. You know, and there's a whole element of the human psychology which requires inurement to that to be able to do it again. It is quite a thing to go and kill someone. Yes, if you're psychologically imbalanced, it may be slightly easier, but, you know, it still is something which, first time you would do it, would be something that would have a huge impact on you. So if you're in the midst of trying to commit some sort of terrorist atrocity and your terrorist atrocity's aim is to kill as many people as you can, well, you have to be inured to do that. And if you've been to a training camp or you've been to a battlefield and you've received indoctrination in that direction, then you would be more effective, sadly, in being able to kill other people. And that's why security services focus on those returning from conflict zones. Raffaello's research group found that lone actors with military training were significantly more effective than those without military training. So this new batch of lone actors are obviously effective in staying off the radar to avoid getting caught. But that lack of a straight line from a terrorist to an organisation leaves big question marks on all sides. How do you know that it was part of some sort of bigger political message? And how do you know that he was really ideologically pure and he wasn't just pissed off because his girlfriend dumped him? And that's important from the terrorist group perspective in terms of advancing your message. Within this sort of broad space, you've got everything from completely isolated to individuals who are part of a network to individuals who may be even being directed. But all of these at the sort of other end of the spectrum in terms of the attack look an awful lot like the same thing. And so it's very difficult to sort of discern exactly what it is you're talking about when you're talking about lone actors. So the question about just how alone lone actors are will probably remain. For the moment, it seems that Al-Qaeda and IS in particular are happy to leverage this new uncertainty to their gain. 
The sort of final wrinkle I'll add on to that is when we're looking specifically at groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda. For some time now, they've been pumping out material through publications like Inspire magazine or more recently ISIS's magazines Ramiya or Dabiq, in which they basically call for people to launch these sorts of attacks. And they're shouting at people, do something, stab someone, drive a car into people, do all sorts of horrible things. And if you do it, you know, you're part of our cause. Now, the difficulty is that when you look at some of the cases of lone night terrorism, you'll see that people have actually launched attacks using these ideas seemingly. And when you look at their computer hard drives, you can find all these publications there. Now, what do we make of that? Was that person alone or were they genuinely being directed by the ideology? And now, a truly disgusting foray into the world of pimple-popping videos. The Conversations intern, Julie Carley, has this repulsive story. I have a secret, and that's that I love popping pimples. And I love to pull out ingrown hairs, and there's that line of goo, and your skin looks perfect. And I feel like a lot of people do. And so, are we weirdos? The reason that we find things that are disgusting so fascinating is because ancestrally we've had to, we've had to attend to these sorts of things in our environment because once we as early humans started cooperating with each other and building small groups and the biggest threat to us becomes not big monster animals on the savannah, but really the small invaders and parasites in the forms of microbes. So really the biggest threat to our survival transitioned to disease. We developed a powerful emotional motivation system for our behavior, which we know now is discussed. That's James Sherlock from the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland. He studies evolutionary psychology and is an expert on disgust. His most recent research focuses on the phenomenon of pimple popping and ingrown hair removal videos and why they're so wildly popular on the internet. Hello, we're watching a pimple popping compilation. Hopefully we won't be sick. Content of this video maybe just uh... Basically, this emotional response is attuned to signals in the environment that might indicate there's a pathogen. But in order for us to recognize these signals, we have to attend to them really strongly. So it's perfectly normal to be interested and fascinated by things that are gross and are associated with a negative emotional response like disgust, because historically we've had to. So the next time someone tells you you're a weirdo for watching pimple popping videos, you can actually say, well, no, my ancestors were just very good at looking out for these things in the environment. So now that we've confirmed that I make perfect biological sense, I want to share an experience with you. So I'm just going to start this video. It's got a nice techno soundtrack to go along with it. I know, they actually curated this really nicely. We're watching a YouTube video that's just a 50 minute compilation of pimples being popped. Oh. Really bizarre. Yep. Oh, yep. It's yeah. Really close. It's really it's zoomed super in. Close. Oh. Ugh. Yeah. It's like an alien. Ugh. Yeah. This is too much for me. Yeah. Oh. So now, with regards to research, how did you kind of figure this out? Yeah. So we nobody's actually studied people watching pimple popping yet. Uh, But we've got lots of studies looking at all kinds of disgusting stimuli and how people respond differently. And my research in particular looks at the genetic differences that make us respond differently to those different uh, elicitors of disgust. So we're lucky enough to have access to a couple of different twin populations. And we use some mathematical modeling on data that's obtained from identical twins and non-identical twins. In our published research, essentially what it did boil down to was around half of the variation due to those genetic effects and half due to individual experience and exposure. Oh, that. It's on his arm. 
Oh, that looks a sour of that. Oh my oh. god! Oh. <laughs> that looks so stubborn. Yes. Oh, oh my god! Sherlock says it basically comes down to your level of tolerance. If some people have a really low level of tolerance for this stuff, they just can't watch. But for other people who like pimple popping videos, it's the arousal response associated with disgust because it's still there to some extent. But it's combined with the reward of popping your own pimple because your disgust sensitivity is low enough to allow you to watch that simulation. Right. So in, in some instances, that, that arousal is actually a reward type of thing. Yeah, it can be quite thrilling to experience the same way that being scared in a movie it should be a negative thing. But for some reason, we seem to enjoy it. We seem to enjoy simulating threats, perhaps because it helps us prepare for them when they actually do occur. But we're not particularly we're not too sure as to that aspect. Most of us fall somewhere in the normal range on the scale of disgust sensitivity, he says. You're not pathological about it, but you don't want a stranger to spit near you. But on the extremely low end, you might have something like coprophilia, which is where somebody actually uh, indulges in orally consuming feces. And at the other end, at the high end of the spectrum, you can have uh, obsessions associated with the potential for infection. So dermatillomania, which is a skin picking disorder, can often be associated with perceptions of uh, parasites or invaders as well as things like blood phobia, are kind of extreme manifestations of a type of disgust sensitivity. It seems to be the case across multiple different sets of stimuli that the more of an emotional response is associated with a particular experience, the easier it is to remember. And historically, that would have been incredibly important for us to not have any chance at all of forgetting that actually this thing in the environment is really, really bad for me and needs to be avoided at all costs. The science isn't settled on this by any means, but what we think is happening is the first component is that cathartic purging sensation that we as individuals get when we pop our own pimples or remove our own ingress is being simulated when we're watching that happen to somebody else. So that's a rewarding sensation in and of itself. But there's also a big social component to this, right? Since we've started talking about this, you have all sorts of people who are like putting their hand up and saying, yep, you know, I'm ready to come out as a pimple popping enthusiast. And you have this, this little community forming, this circle of privileged information where you can share your experiences with each other and it's relatively unique. So I think that's a very big component as well is the fact that it's taboo. And that's a really, really enjoyable experience for humans is engaging in these small groups and sharing something with people in them. That's big as well. Oh my God! Oh, what the hell? It's a guy's back. It's unbelievable. It's just cheap. And for our last story today, The Conversation's Deputy Science Editor Michael Lund explores the weird and wonderful world of quantum mechanics. Scientists are weird because we really like ignorance. Right? If you don't know the answer to something, that's great because that means you've now got uh, an interesting problem to solve. That's Professor Andrew White from the University of Queensland. He's also the director of the Australian Research Council's Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems, and he knows he has one heck of a problem to solve. Any piece of electronics you have, be it your phone, be it headphones, be it solar cell on your roof, photocopier in your office, laser at the supermarket. Anything that uses semiconductors is using um, quantum mechanics. So a semiconductor is something that can be 
an insulator, it won't let current flow, or it can be a conductor, it'll let electrons flow. And whether it does that or not um, depends or uses the fact that the electrons can behave both like particles and waves. So we call that wave-particle duality. Um, and basically all of modern technology is based on that one feature of quantum mechanics. So how many advances have there been then in sort of pushing the speed, the power of technology using that quantum device? We've lived it in our lifetimes, you know. Uh, there was exponential growth for decades. Um, computers got faster every 18 months. Um, you hold in your pocket a supercomputer bigger than a Cray XMP from the 1980s um, with a far better screen than your TV screen that you have on the wall at home. Um, but interestingly enough, if you look across a range of technologies, in the last 20 years, we've hit a performance wall. That performance wall is a problem for engineers. Professor White says it places a limitation on their ability to develop any new technologies. And the limitation here is not human cleverness. People are still plenty clever. It's that we are still only using one aspect of quantum mechanics. And so in some cases, in fact, um, these performance limits or walls are actually are called the quantum limit. Um, but this is an opportunity. So when we talk about pushing forward the boundaries of science, we really are stuck at a boundary here. We're, at, we're hitting a technological boundary because we're not using all the science we know. So what science do we need to know now? Ah, so we know that there's much more to quantum mechanics than wave-particle duality. There's superposition, the fact that an object really truly can be in two places at the same time. It's not a metaphor, that's really how the world is at the nanoscopic and microscopic scale. There's entanglement, the fact that quantum systems can be correlated together in really powerful and weird ways. It looks like cheating. Um, this is what Einstein called spooky action at a distance. Um, if I had entangled cards, I could always win at the casino, but I'd probably get my hand nailed to the table. Um, and there's the fact that measurement in quantum mechanics changes the object that you're looking at. This doesn't happen in the real world. When I look at my pen, it doesn't turn into a box of matches. But measurement can be utterly transformative in quantum case. So using those three things is called the second quantum revolution. We're going to take all of the science we know. Quantum mechanics is the most successful physical um, theory we have of nature. It's been tested out to something like 12 or 14 um, significant figures. So people make a prediction and then go do a measurement and they agree to uh, 14 places past the decimal point, which is extraordinary. But we're not using all of it in today's technology. How do we know if we tap into these extra three elements of quantum physics that we're not just going to find new ways of doing what we already do now and we hit the same boundaries? Ah, that's a good question. Um, so certainly we will find new ways of some of the things we're doing now. But there have also been, there's been a lot of theory and even experimental work in the last 10, 15 years showing us how to do new things that we just were impossible previously. Um, the best known of these is possibly quantum computation. So there are certain problems that every time I add one more bit of difficulty to the problem, the time it takes to solve the problem doubles. So internet security is currently based on this. If I uh, take two prime numbers, three and five, and ask you to multiply them, the answer is? 15. Right, uh, and that's easy. And if I say, what are the prime factors of 15, you say? Three and five. And if I say, what are the prime factors of 341? <laughs> Hand me a calculator. Right. And if I say, what are the prime factors of a 200-digit number? You can show that that becomes exponentially difficult. So that kind of problem 
that kind of uh, characteristic is the thing behind internet security at the moment. But there's a bunch of problems that we'd like to solve like this. Um, modeling problems in chemistry, modeling some behaviors in biology, are these exponentially difficult problems. If I had a, a quantum system, and we've shown that quantum systems can simulate these hard problems efficiently, which means they don't blow up exponentially. If I double the size of the problem, I just double the computation time. Less well known but more intriguing is there are these limits in, in sensing. When I hit a noise floor and I cannot get any more information than that because I've hit the, the kind of fundamental noisiness of the universe. But using these other aspects of quantum mechanics, I can go under those quantum noise limits. So I could detect very small changes in gravitational fields or magnetic fields or um, changes in mass. So we've got lots of things that we know should work. Um, we've got some technologies where we've shown that they work kind of in the lab on small scale. And now one of our challenges is how can we turn these ideas and these lab demonstrations from that's cute into functioning, scalable technologies to change how we do science. news is that this research is attracting interest from governments and industry, and that's translating into research dollars. Professor White says they can all see the potential. So what's fantastic in Australia is we had some scientists very early on who got excited, who made significant contributions in this space, and they were able to talk to government, federal, state, in some cases local government, and we've had support consistently from all levels of government. Um, from all parties for 20 years. And so this is one of those wonderful situations where we're currently um, world leaders. If there was one thing you would want to see from this second quantum revolution, what physical thing would it be? What would be sitting in our household, in our office, in the near future? <laughs> You're going to hate the answer to this. I can't answer that. If you went and talked to... The people who invented the transistor, and look up a photo of them on the internet, they're middle-aged white guys, lab coats, crowding around a chip the size of your fingernail, touching a whisker down to it. I don't think they would have seen me playing Pokemon Go while listening to my favorite tunes at the bus stop. So I really can't say. But on a, on a shorter term, not into the home, I want to build the tools that will let us solve the hard problems that we've got coming up in both science and society. Um, it's, uh, you know, we, we know organisms are very good at taking carbon from the atmosphere and locking it down. We don't have good ways of doing that yet with technology. Um, we've made a problem where we're going to need a technological solution. We've spent the past few hundred years putting millions of years of carbon into the atmosphere. The planet does not have the ability to pull that back down without significant damage to the current ecosystem. Um, so I'm hoping that some of the tools we're building uh, will help people in solving that problem. As one example, in medicine, MRI is another. Uh, the ability to detect small changes in gravitational fields will change civil engineering. I don't know which of these will be the killer app, but I'm confident there will be more than one. What's it like working in a field where you actually can't see the end product? You don't know what the outcome is going to be? Terribly exciting. What's also really interesting about this is, you know, um, this is also partly selfish. One of the reasons we're building these technologies is that we can then, these are the tools for us to do the science we want to do as well. 
So the kind of science we do in quantum mechanics, um, the tools we need, you can't buy. So you end up making yourself. Uh, and a really early example of this is the laser. The laser was made by scientists for reasons of that would be cool. And for the first 10 years of, of its life, it was known as the invention looking for an application. Um, it's now used in surgery. It's used, you know, you're wearing a pair of jeans. They were almost certainly cut by a carbon dioxide laser. Um, this is why you can um, change fashion so quickly now. You don't need to have a metal template to go through your meter high stack of denim. You can just do it with a laser. And that's one example. But the people who were working on the laser were interested in fundamental physics. And it came out of, by the way, people wanting to understand how methane molecules vibrated. So if you went to government and said, I'd like money to understand why smelly gas vibrates in a certain way and interacts with light, and it will change your society, they would look at you oddly, but it's really true. So this is the joy of curiosity-driven research. If you like Trust Me, I'm an Expert, you should check out The Ant Hill from our colleagues over at The Conversation UK. Their latest episode is all about intuition, from how it works in the body to how to harness it, and the story of two scientists who followed a hunch about quantum biology. Here's a clip. Sometimes we pick up on something. You know, something happens in the corner of your eye, but you don't notice it, but you are processing it. And when that happens, and it's a significant event, something that you should pay attention to, then your body tells you something's going on and you start paying attention. And that's a gut instinct. So basically you have processed something, just not in your conscious awareness, not in your working memory. That's the Ant Hill Podcast. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation, where we bring you the stories, ideas and insights from the world of academic research. Special thanks today to Wes Mountain, Julie Carley and Michael Lund, and to all the academics who made time to talk to us. Our theme beats are from Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this podcast from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of credits on our website at theconversation.com. 